This is a continuation of the 18th chapter. The Gita is an extremely practical gospel. It does not give us a hard and fast rule which is applicable to every human being regardless of his calling and station and aptitude in life. If such a dogmatic rule did exist, there would be very few indeed who would be able to fulfill its exacting standards. And it would be an unjust God indeed who cast each man in a different mold and yet expected all to follow one adamantine rule of conduct in order to evolve. The Gita does not follow such a theory. Each one has to evolve from where he stands and his natural bent is the best guide to his conduct, which if he follows faithfully, he will evolve regardless of what the action entails. Hence the stress in the Gita on the following of Aswadharma. By following one's duty, says the Lord, one worships God from whom all beings are born and by whom all this is pervaded and one attains perfection. The Vaishya is one in whom Rajas and Tamas are mixed, leading to greed and business propensities. The Shudra is one in whom Tamas and Rajas are mixed, leading to servitude and menial labor. Devoted to his own duty, man can attain the highest perfection for work is worship. This is the keynote and wonderfully encouraging message of the Gita. Whatever be the natural born qualities in us, we can attain perfection provided we offer that work, however menial it might be, to the Lord who created us, for He is our hope our goal and our salvation and he will accept whatever gift we give provided it is offered with love. Though the world may make a mockery of our efforts, though we may be despised and derided, though we may be stoned, persecuted or crucified, so long as we are faithful to our ideal, there can be no fall for us. Let us summarize these points once again, for they are very important. First, there are four broad types of nature, each with its characteristic function. The choice of profession and therefore of action must be decided with due consideration to the innate nature. If this is done, then that work itself can be turned Godwards and made the effective means of his personal liberation. It may be pointed out that modern society is not such a simple one and very often it forces us into certain molds from which there seems to be no escape. This is so only if we follow the rule of the herd in a tamasic, unintelligent manner. If we make use of the innate capacities of reasoning with which each man is endowed, we can discern what is best suited for us and then if we have the courage to follow that, regardless of whether it brings us more money or less, we will find that we progress. 
the difficulty in modern life is that the Vaishya or business mentality seems to be predominating and even the choice of profession is decided not according to our own mental inherent ability but to the amount of monetary profit it would bring. If one succumbs to this temptation, then one goes against the law of our nature and then naturally it would be a spiritual suicide for that life would be a waste as far as evolution is concerned. But if we have the courage to stick to our principles and carry on according to the bent of our mind, then we will find that the truth of what the Gita has said becomes more and more obvious. Such an individual will be a living soul who will have a greater capacity for service to the society as well, to perform our duty in unity with the spirit within us and as a conscious instrument of the divine is what is known as karma yoga and this is the perfection which humanity is capable of to unveil the immortal within us is the purpose of life and for that each jiva has a force which guides it through its apparently uncertain but actually inevitable growth to its spiritual fullness. This is our Swabhava and the law of action as determined by this Swabhava is our Swadharma. When we scrutinize the characteristics of the, these four types, we will find that they are not really fundamental divisions of mankind but fundamental stages of self-development in our progress from manhood to godhood. The human being in its journey from animal man to man-man starts with a load of inertia and ignorance which has to be got rid of only by toiling for the society in a physical fashion and these are the shudras bound in tamas when that tamas is mixed with rajas we find the vaishya driven by an instinct for acquisition when rajas is mixed with sattva we find the evolution of the kshatriya with ambition to lead and rule and command and where the sattvic mind predominates we find the Brahmin with the desire for the highest knowledge, the highest truth. The Gita tells us that by worshipping the, the divine with the work as determined by the law of our being, we can get beyond the limitation of the three gunas as well as the fourfold law and the distinction of the separate dharmas. In the next 15 verses, the Lord summarizes the whole outline and essence of his message. They have to be studied carefully, for this is what the Lord himself considers as the crown of his teaching. The first difficulty which faces the man on the spiritual path is how to reconcile life in the world with all its problems with the life of the spirit. How to act in the world and yet live in the highest self. The Advedic way is the ascetic path which appears to be the safest way and that is to regard the world as a snare and an illusion and give it up as soon as possible. The Gita recognizes 
and accepts the existence of this path, but sees that this cuts the knot rather than loosening it. The next five verses are phrased in such a way that it can be applied to both the inner and outer sannyas. The first step to an inner sannyas has to be the mental withdrawal from the objects of the senses. The intellect must arrive at inner naishparmya or inner inactivity. We all know that the two selves in us, the daivik and the asurik, are always struggling for possession. The first step, as has been said, is the conscious withdrawal of the intellect from the objects of the senses. But mere detachment is not a very permanent state. The mind craves for some form of attachment. So having detached itself from the kshara or objective world, it has to attach itself to the poise and serenity of the akshara purusha within itself. But to divorce the kshara from the akshara is not the whole truth of our spiritual nature, as the Gita has been insisting all along. Shara and Akshara, nature and self, are in the end one and the same thing. A perfect spirituality makes us one with the Purushottama or the Divine in both self and nature. For that, we must first practice inward silence. We must regard all actions as being done by the Lord's prakriti, its threefold gunas, and also offer all action to the Supreme Lord. We should abandon all personal in the action and strive to become a divine instrument. The enlightened intellect, which has thus freed itself from the coils of lower nature and fixed itself on the Supreme, finds it very easy to practice karma yoga. To achieve this, in the beginning, he advocates living in secluded places, eating light food, and meditating on the Lord. Such a man soon begins to display all the qualities of the Siddha Pratnya, perfect equality to all things and to all creatures. These verses might mislead us into believing that after all, it is the classic form of sannyas that the Lord is advocating. But have, after having gone through the whole Gita, we cannot fall into such an error. We have to realize that these are but the outer preparations for the inner tyaga, which is indicated in the next two verses, where the ego disappears into the silence of the Supreme Self. Having gained this knowledge, there flowers in him a great and perfect love for the master of his being, which is the final breakthrough by which he comes to know him integrally and enters into him. This is the union of the lover and the beloved which gives all knowledge, since unity is the foundation of integral knowledge. This knowledge is the inevitable portion of the highest experience, the knowledge of the one who eternally becomes the many, and the many which, in its apparent divisions, 
is still the one. This is the integral knowledge which makes us capable of liberated action. It is the culmination of supreme bhakti and the core of supreme knowledge leading to supreme action. Now it becomes evident how action can continue in life for it is consistent with the supreme spiritual experience. The Lord is quite vehement on this point. Having re recourse to me alone, he who does his actions attains by my grace the eternal and imperishable abode and status. The verses 57 to 62, though spoken to the protagonist of Kurukshetra, is applicable to all of us and provide a universal rule for all those who are ready to ascend above the ordinary mentality of the limited ego and ascend to the highest spiritual consciousness. These words express the most complete and intimate relationship between man and God. It contains the concentrated feeling that comes from the outflow of religious experience based on absolute knowledge, leading to absolute adoration with the surrender of the whole of his existence, his will, his intelligence, his heart. For now he knows that he, as the personalized separate entity, does not exist. Only he, the Lord, exists. It is an unreserved giving of himself to the deity from whom he came and in whom he lives. What can he give but himself? What has he got to give except what has been given to him by that Supreme? The Gita declares bhakti or adoration of the Supreme to be the crown of Supreme Knowledge. The greatest sannyas is the sannyas or renunciation of all action unto him. These verses are not addressed to an impersonal, indifferent absolute, but to the sole friend, lover, and most intimate spirit of our life, not merely of this life, but of all lives. But this is not the usual relationship established between the so-called religious man and his chosen deity in order to satisfy the limited desires of his ego. The individual who surrenders here is the jiva who has divested itself from its personalized ego conceptions and knows itself to be an eternal portion of the divine who has no desires for he has found the fulfillment of all his desires in the Lord of his heart and soul. It is this spiritual being who enters into an ecstatic relationship with the Supreme Purushottama. It is the state achieved by the gobis of Vrindavan who forgot their bodies, who forgot their minds, and forgot every other worldly relationship and knew only the Lord, their eternal beloved, ever ready, ever waiting for them to come to him out of their own volition, without any desire, without any expectation, without any thought of reward, only and purely because they could not stay apart from him, even for a minute 
even for a second, for their entire being was bound up with him and existed only in him. And nothing and nobody, no earthly bond, could restrain the mad, impetuous rush of their beings towards him, their Lord, their Master, their Beloved. And he who receives this total surrender is not the limited deity of our religious misconceptions, but the Purushottama, the original, transcendent, and imminent spirit of all existence. It is he the absolute, but he also the friend and lover and teacher who is the object as well as the subject of this most complete surrender. This final transition can be accomplished only step by step. The Purushottama veils himself and appears as if subject to the law of Prakriti's modes. At every step of this progress, some dharma prevails. At first, at the base, is the dharma of tamas or inertia. The second step is the dharma of rajas or action. And at the top is the harmonious dharma of sattva, which attempts to follow its limited personal standard of virtue and ethics. But the last is only temporarily satisfying to the enlightened personal ego, since it is not founded on the whole truth of existence. The actual life of man is a mixture of all these. The best human knowledge is but a half-knowledge, and the highest human virtue but a thing of mixed qualities. For the reason why we do good is not clearly understood, even though we may not admit it to ourselves. Even the perfect fulfillment of the sattvic nature is only an illusion, for neither the nature of the world nor our own nature is made up of pure sattva alone. Therefore our path lies beyond the three gunas. Arjuna's refusal to persevere in his divinely appointed work proceeds from his ego alone. It sprang from a confused mixture of sattva, rajas, and tamas. because he does not want to cause injury. Rajasik, because he was afraid only of causing injury to his own people. And tamasik, because he was frightened that he might commit sin in so doing. All these doubts, as have been mentioned before, would not have occurred to him if the antagonists had not been related to him. Even now, as Krishna knows well, if he persists in casting down his arms, he will be helplessly compelled to take them up again due to the very nature which will irresistibly force him to take up arms to protect the dharma which he has upheld for so long and which he will be unable to witness being slaughtered on the battlefield before him. And if he is thus compelled by nature alone, and forced to act, there is no virtue in such an action. He desists because of his ego's promptings, and if he acts because of his natural impulses, then where is the virtue? Such an action 
will mean a greater spiritual downfall, for it will be a victory for the ego twice over. In this instance, he would have been a blind and helpless doom, whereas here he is called upon to be a living and conscious instrument. The ordinary life and mind of man is an ignorant and half-enlightened level of the development of the spirit concealed within him, the secret of which he is either ignorant of or has not mastered. He conducts his life as if he were a separate individual who has the freedom of thought and will and action. So long as he does that, he has to bear the burden of sin and suffering and or enjoy the merits of his knowledge and virtue. He feels he has the power to shape his own destiny and reform the world to suit his own needs and fulfill his own desires. Nature deals with him according to his conceptions, but all the time she fulfills the will of the spirit within her. This spirit is identical with the spirit within him, but he is unaware of it. The kshara and the akshara are the same. His mistake lies in the fact that he identifies himself with the physical, mental, and mechanical part of him, which is only a device of nature. He misses out on the great spiritual significance within him, which gives his life a meaning and purpose. The universal nature obeys the law of the spirit, who is the master of the universe and shapes each creature according to its swabhava. Our subjection to our swabhava or nature thus becomes obvious. The animal has a total mechanical obedience to her, while man, because of his reasoning ability, gets a type of misleading freedom which prevents him from finding out the foundation of his true liberty. Freedom for man over his nature cannot be complete until he becomes aware of his divinity and consciously shapes his swabhava to act according to the will of that spirit within him. Hence the controversial verse 61 when Krishna says, Ishvara Sarva Bhudanam Hridde Tishtadi Brahmayan Sarva Bhudani Yantra Rudani Mayaya. The Lord, O Arjuna, is seated in the heart of all beings who are mounted on the magic wheel of existence and causes them to rotate through the power of his maya. Does this mean that the freedom of will which we boast about is an absolute myth and that we are helpless victims in the hands of the omnipotent? It is only the headstrong, rajasic ego, steeped in the delusion of its own separate individuality, that can think up such a question. So long as we are mounted on the wheel of this body, mind and intellect, so long as we consider ourselves to be this physical and mental entity alone, separate and individualistic, 
selfish and self-satisfied. We are indeed helpless victims in the machinations of nature. We live in our own world of make-believe, in which we each play the role of hero, strutting and bowing to the applause of an audience consisting of ourselves on a stage of our own creation. So long as we believe this, we are indeed but puppets in the hands of nature, dancing to her tune and being manipulated by the puppeteer from behind the screen of Maya. We think we know everything and that we are the sole proprietors of this body and the sole agents of our destiny. Even in the very midst of our posturing and acting, we might be struck down dead. This is how sure we can be of our make-believe structure. This stage, this physical structure on which we pin our hopes and which we think is the basis of our personality may be felled at any moment. Even the bravest hero, the greatest millionaire, the strongest wrestler, or the cleverest scientist cannot be certain of the moment of his death. And yet we claim freedom of will and mastery over our destiny. Even the mind and intellect on which we pride ourselves may fail us in the moment of our need. The number of mental asylums and psychiatrists who thrive in any modern society is proof of this. Ignorance of our real selves is the root cause of our bondage. And so long as we're ignorant and believe ourselves to be the physical and mental entity alone, we will be in bondage to nature. The truth is that, whether in ignorance or in knowledge, we have our existence here only because of Him, the Divine, and His will is the sole agent in ourselves as well as in the entire universe. As, as soon as this knowledge dawns on us, we can climb down from the giant wheel of nature's machinery and become free agents. We think we are enforcing our rights and establishing our greatness by asserting our individuality and reiterating our mortality, whereas the Lord declares that it is only by renouncing our individuality and surrendering our mortality that we can achieve the heights of immortality and eternity, which is our true nature. We have thrown away the real and clung to the unreal. We have clutched the empty shell of the body and called it our own without tasting the sweetness of the kernel within, which is the very stuff of which we are made up of. When we enter into this inmost self of our existence, we come to know that we are one with that spirit and Godhead, whom all nature serves. In ignorance, 
Our freedom is only a pale shadow. Our best knowledge only a partial ray and our will only a deflection of this spirit who is the master and soul of the universe. It is he who seated in the heart of every creature who has been turning us in all our inner and outer actions during ignorance as if mounted on a machine in the wheel of lower nature. To live consciously and integrally in this knowledge and this truth is to escape from the ego and break free from the veil of Maya. All other dharmas are only a preparation for this dharma and all yoga is only a means by which we can come to an integral union with him, the master of our being. The crux of the spiritual problem, which is so difficult for the normal mind to apprehend, is due to his complete belief in himself as a limited ego and his complete ignorance of the luminous existence which the jiva enjoys when it is liberated from the confines of this ego. We are all hard-boiled individuals. We are loath to surrender our individualities even if we are promised the state of immortal bliss. We try to cover the naked truth of our inherent human weaknesses with the frail garment of our egos and brandish the sword of pride to fight for our non-existent individual rights. How can we ever contemplate a state of absolute surrender? But this is just what the Lord demands. Tameva sharanam gacha Sarva bhavena bharata. In him take refuge in every way of thy being, and by his grace thou shalt come to the supreme peace and eternal status. Therefore, the greatest yoga is to take refuge from all the perplexities and difficulties of our nature with this indwelling Lord of our hearts and to turn to him with our whole being, our body, mind, senses, heart and intellect, sarva bhavena. Then that divine power takes hold of us and fills us and leads us through all the doubts and difficulties and perils that beset our lives to the eternal status which is our natural abode. Having given out this most secret of all secrets, the Lord, as if in jest, tells Arjuna to do what he wishes. But of course it is obvious that he has only one choice, to be the divine instrument, but then only will he be his own redeemer as well as the redeemer of the society. Arjuna is most beloved by the Lord and so to him was given the most secret truth, Sarva Guhyatamam. It is only the rare soul who can be admitted to this mystery for only he is near enough to the Godhead to understand and appreciate this message. Moreover, it is only after having gone through all the severe practices and yogas of the previous 17 chapters that we should be ready to receive this supreme secret. If it had been given in the beginning, the impact would have been lost for the meaning 
would have been incomprehensible. Only the soul, burnished in the fire of renunciation, sharpened in the stone of action, and drenched with the love of the divine, is capable of understanding and following this message. The meaning of these two verses, 65 and 66, can only be hinted at. Their actual import has to be a revelation within each individual, the flowering of his spiritual experience. All the teachings and disciplines of the previous chapters were but a preparation for this final consummation. Man mana bhava mad bhakto, madhyaji maam namaskuru, maame vaishyasti satyam te, pradijane priyosime. Fix your mind on me, be devoted unto me, worship me and bow unto me. I give you my pledge that you shall attain me, for you are very dear indeed to me. Sarvadharman Parityaja Maamegam Sharanam Braja Aham Tva Sarvapabhyo Moksha Yishyami Maashujaha Surrender all dharmas and duties to me. Take refuge in me alone and fear not, but I shall free you from all harm. Krishna has been insisting throughout on the practice of a well-built discipline of yoga. The following of our Swabhava and Swadharma. And now, at the end, he seems to tell us something quite different. Abandon all dharmas. Give yourself to the divine alone. And that is all you need to do. For that is the highest dharma, the highest duty, and the highest religion. For he is the spirit whom all nature serves, and we ourselves are soul of this soul, spirit of this spirit. Our body is his image, our life his movement, our mind a mirror of his consciousness, our senses his instruments, and our action a means of fulfilling his purpose. So the following of all other dharmas should lead to the knowledge of this supreme dharma, the manushya dharma, the knowledge that the attainment of him alone is the supreme dharma. That alone is the only duty which is obligatory on the jiva. All other dharmas are but a prelude to this and once that has been accepted and decided upon by the jiva, it can abandon all other dharmas for the attainment of him who is in himself the supreme dharma. Having done that, leave him to do what he wills with your life and do not be perplexed when his ways seem to differ from the established ideas of the world or even from your own ideas, for his way is the way of perfect trust and perfect love and perfect knowledge. This then is the supreme word that the spirit is infinitely free from all dharmas in its essence. The world is conducted by the Godhead according to fixed laws and mankind has to find his path through this maze of lower prakriti, through many dharmas based on the prevailing views of right and wrong, sin and virtue, like 
and dislike, pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow. He has to traverse the path of dharma as given to him by his swadharma, as based on his swabhava through his physical, vital, emotional, mental, intellectual, ethical, and spiritual forms of conduct, rules, and standards which adjust society and his own sattvic disposition leads him through. But the Spirit or Godhead transcends all these dharmas and the jiva who casts away the different cloaks of his false identity with these various aspects of his personality and comes to realize his identity with this free spirit will find that he too can transcend these dharmas. If we surrender our egos completely and absolutely to this spirit within and without and accept only his guidance, then that brings with it the absolute and inevitable perfection of our nature to be enjoyed in an absolute freedom. This is the way offered to the chosen man, to those who are closest to him, those who have surrendered their egos as Arjuna had, and those who have none to call their own except him. To such a one, the Lord makes a solemn promise, the promise made by God to man. Surrender your ego, which is a myth of your own making, together with the duties imposed on you by that ego, to me, the Lord, seated within the chariot of your body. And I will carry you through the dreary desert of your life as I carried Arjuna through the gory battlefield of Kurukshetra. And do not grieve at the happenings of this world which you cannot understand. For I give you my absolute assurance that I myself will lead you beyond sorrow to the highest abode. This is the final word of the Gita. And the master lovingly turns to his pupil and asks him, has this been followed by you, O Arjuna, with single-pointed concentration? Has your delusion been destroyed? Destroyed is the illusion of my mind, and my doubts have vanished, and I stand firmly to do your bidding, says Arjuna. The whole yoga has thus been revealed, and Arjuna, the chosen soul, the Vibhuti, is ready to take up the divine action. The last verses of the Gita are uttered by Sanjaya, the enlightened Prime Minister of the blind King Dhritarashtra, to whom the discourse is being narrated. O King, says Sanjaya, blessed am I, for by the grace of the sage Vyasa, I have heard this soul-stirring discourse by the master of yoga, and I stand enraptured. Wherever there is Krishna, the lord of yoga, and wherever there is Arjuna, the wielder of the bow, there will be prosperity, victory, glory and righteousness. Sanjaya thus gives a hint to the blind king of the outcome of the battle. For where Krishna and Arjuna stand united, there can be only 
victory. Krishna and Arjuna stand for the Jivatma and the Paramatma, man and God seated together in the chariot of the body. And when man and God stand united, when the individual works in unity with the divine, when he becomes the living, conscious instrument of the divine, then there can never be a defeat for him. When Arjuna, the embodied man, the Jivatman, becomes the bow in the hands of the divine archer, then there can be no doubt that victory, auspiciousness and righteousness will follow. Yatra Yogeshwara Krishna, Yatra Partho Dhanurdara, Tatra Shri Vijayo Bhodir, Druvo Nedir Madir Mama, Hari Om Tat Sat. Yeah. 
making use of the different circumstances of each life as goads to help him in his ascent. With eternal time at his disposal and immortality as his goal and God himself as his one and only traveling companion. To all such pilgrims, and especially to you, my brother, the eternal Arjuna, the invincible warrior who has never been defeated, this has been dedicated. May the divine charioteer guide you and all like you through the darkness of Kurukshetra to the Dharmakshetra of immortal bliss. Hari Om Tad Tad. We conclude with the ancient Vedic benediction for universal peace. Vakti Prajabhyam Paripalayantam Nyayena Margena Mahimahisham Go Brahmane Vyasubhamastu Nityam Loke Samasta Sukino Bhavantu Kale Vashadu Pajanyaha Sridhivi Sasya Shalini Deshoyam Chobanahidaha Brahmana Santu Nirbhaya Sarvesham Swastir Bhavadu Sarvesham Shantir Bhavadu Sarvesham Purnam Bhavadu Sarvesham Mangalam Bhavadu Sarve Bhavandu Sukhinaha Sarve Santu Niramaya Sarve Padrani Pashyantu Magasit Dukkavavade Om Asatoma Sadgamaya Samasoma Jyotirgamaya Mrityorma Mritamgamaya Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnata Purnamurachyate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishyate
Yeah.